Facts of Faith with Nael Pondwana, 7 to 8 p.m. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to Facts of Faith with me, Nayelu Pondwana. We are together until 8 o'clock. It's five minutes after 7. Thank you very much to each and everyone who has been ever so kind to say something nice about our work. We thank you very much. Before we begin our program tonight, I'd like to just say a few words about the team that I've been working with. Um, one of my team members um, is... I've been told is no longer with the SABC, and um, it's kind of a sad moment. And I do want to appreciate her, She has been the executive producer for this program for as long as I have hosted this program, and she left on Friday. Was not here on Friday. Was out of the province, dare I say, out of the country. But I only returned. Today, I wasn't able to be in her farewell, but I do wish that everybody knows it was not just uh, uh, Phineas, Vesta, Patrick, Joey, and I who were doing this program. Uh, Bulikiawa also was uh, at the head of the production team of this program, and we're ever so grateful for her leading this team in terms of production to where it is today. So, um, everybody must know now. Perhaps I should uh, also make it plain and clear that um, had it not been for her leadership, perhaps we would have gone all over the show. But we appreciate the fact that Bulikiawa has been uh, leading uh, the production team here for Facts of Faith, and we're grateful for her leadership up until Friday. But um, we're looking forward to the new leader of the production team, the executive producer of this program, and uh, we're looking forward to working with her as well. With that said... Our question for tonight is about feminism. Not just feminism. It's about Islamic feminism. Sounds like contradiction in terms, doesn't it? To talk about Islam and then activism and then feminine activism. Now, I call it feminine activism not because it is done only by females, but it seeks to affirm the feminine gender. I want us to be very clear. We're not talking about this watered-down version of feminism where people are saying they're trying to affirm both genders. Feminism has never been about affirming both genders. So I don't want us to even venture into that conversation. We're talking about the original feminism which saw suffragists and whole idea was to elevate the recognition of human rights to include female rights. The idea of the original concept and construction of feminism, first wave and second wave feminism, was to ever elevate the recognition of human rights to include female rights. So the very idea of the origins of feminism as we are going to be having a conversation tonight is not to say, do women have rights? It is to say, we now need to recognize because we've been blinded to the fact that women's rights are human rights. We cannot be talking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights 
and then exclude women as though women are not humans. That's the premise we're moving from, and I'm giving this introduction so that we don't deviate and waste the rest of our 50 minutes trying to redirect the fundamental definition for this conversation of feminism. So we're talking about that. But now we're trying to establish if there is such a thing. Is there such a thing as Islamic feminism? Now, the idea is born out of this wave of theological innuendos. People suggesting that Islam does not recognize female rights. Is that true? Is it true to say that Islam does not recognize female rights? I mean, if I've been listening to all of the theologians who'd come, you Muslim theologians, they'll tell you that, yes, of course, you do find a very small minority of those who have come to this show who would say no, but the greatest majority of the people that have come to this show, they do acknowledge that Islam recognizes women's rights as human rights. Then where does this come from? Where does this idea of feminism being a necessity in Islam come from? Can we ever talk about Islamic feminism? Because the idea of Islamic feminism suggests that there is a need to affirm female rights because they have been negated, ignored, or vandalized of some sort. Looted, if we're going to use these colloquialisms that have taken over the past three months or so. So here is the issue. We're asking the question, plain and simple, is there such a thing as Islamic feminism? Can we really talk about Islamic feminism? Is there a need for us to even talk about Islamic? If there is, what is Islamic feminism? Is that implicitly suggesting that Islam denigrates female rights and as such there is a need to reaffirm, reestablish that recognition that women are humans and therefore have the very same right that the man has. That's the basis of our conversation. That's our question for tonight. Is there such a thing as Islamic feminism? I'm Nayelo Pondwana. This is Facts of Faith. You're listening to SFM. Sylvester, let's begin. The views and ideas expressed in this program are views expressly of the people sharing them and not of the anchor or that of this broadcaster. All persons, juristic or natural, are to be held responsible for their own representations offered on this program by their agents and not this corporation. Any and all consumption of our conversational substance is entirely at your own discretion. Please be advised that this program airs subject matter that has the potential to destabilize and challenge your intellectual equilibrium. If you are excitable, profound caution when consuming our subject matter is advised. Participation in this program is a voluntary enterprise and as such is expected to be considered and deliberated on. Kindly note that, just as the anchor is, all participants, guests and callers are encouraged to engage in this our freedom of expression and any of our civil liberties responsibly. Naye Lupondwana on SAFM. Let me introduce you to our guests in no particular order. I'm going to begin by talking to you and introducing you to Associate Professor Saadia Sheikh. Um, Professor Sheikh is uh, giving us some perspective. She's an Associate Professor in the Department 
for the study of religions at the University of Cape Town here in South Africa. Prof, good evening to you and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Um, thank you for having me as a guest. Thank you I very much. I too am looking forward to being schooled by you, Professor. And also, we do have Dr. Fatima Sidat. I'm hoping I'm reading that correctly. PhD, Islamic Law, McGill. is a senior lecturer in gender studies and has a specialization in gender studies at the intersections of Islam, sexuality, and law. Dr. Sadat, good evening to you, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Good evening, and thank you for having me. All right. I'm going to begin by uh, first um, getting this straight. Is there such a thing as Islamic feminism? I'm hoping you, you, you heard my introduction. Is there such a thing as Islamic feminism, Prof? Professor uh, Asadia? Uh, indeed. Uh, Naya, there has been a vibrant and incredibly productive field of Islamic feminism that's developed pretty much over the last 30 years um, and has produced a huge amount of incredibly engaged uh, literature and activism in the area of gender justice in Muslim communities. And so not only, they, not only is it present and alive, in fact, it's one of the most transformative movements uh, that characterizes the contemporary uh, landscape of social justice in various parts of the Muslim world. All right, got it. Dr. Sidat, do you also believe that there is such a thing as Islamic feminism? Yes, there certainly is. There are many people who uh, articulate a sense of connection with Islam and ideals of feminism. Um, and if we can get into uh, what that would be, you know, it could essentially be a connection between what it means to be Muslim and what it also means to be to um, address issues of power in gendered ways. And there are many who will argue that that kind of questioning is inherent to Islamic thought, that Islamic thought naturally and uh, inherently questions the associations of power. All right. Just, just, just hold on there, Doc, uh, Dr. Sidat. Um, I'm struggling to make out what you're saying. It sounds like you're wearing a mask or something. I'm going to ask that my producer find out if there's a way we can clear and, and clear up your voice so that you can be able to make out. Is it out better now? Much better. Much. Thank you very much. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Continue, Dr. Sidat. Should I start again or should I? Please start again because I, I was struggling okay. to make out what you were saying. Okay, so like Professor Sheikh says, yes, there is indeed um, something called Islamic feminism, and uh, it reflects in large part the ways in which people talk about what it is to be Muslim, and also to talk about what it is to question the gendered locations of power. And many would argue that that is indeed an inherent part of Islamic thought, uh, the questioning of power, where it lies, and how it functions in society, especially along gendered lines, people would argue that that is an inherently uh, Islamic way of thinking. This does not mean that, of course, that it is not a contested area. 
Okay. Then perhaps um, um, from the very onset, I must open up the floor for any and everybody to join in the conversation because it's going to get a bit uncomfortable because right now we have to ask very fundamental questions beginning with Islam and then the very construct of feminism. For those of you who'd like to join in the conversation by calling, call me on 011-714-2006. Again, 011-714-2006. That's the landline. If you prefer to send a text message, send that to 41391. 41391. If you're on social media, both on WhatsApp and on, uh, no, no, not WhatsApp, on Facebook and Twitter, it's at SFM Radio, at SFM Radio. And uh, the hashtag for those who are on Twitter, it's SFM Facts of Faith. And the WhatsAppers, those who are on WhatsApp, you can use the number 0614-104-107-0614-104-107. Professor Sheikh, let's, let's get some clear, something clear here. So if we're going to have activism uh, inherently suggesting the recognition of female and women's rights, that then implicitly suggests that Islam has not and did not recognize women as humans deserving of those universally declared human rights, hence the need and the requirement to be active. Would that be a correct surmising? Actually, that would be quite an incorrect surmising, Naye. Uh, in effect, Islamic feminism is a particular kind of language being employed in the current period to be, uh, that's become, in some sense, very clearly um, using gender as a category of analysis in a very conscious way. And that would be a kind of uh, intervention when you think about gender as a category of analysis. However, Islamic feminists, for the most part, see their work as an expansion of their faith position. They see it in much of the work. There's a whole, there's, there's a number of things that Islamic feminists do. There's different kinds of methodological things. They read the tradition indeed, recognizing the way in which the, the religious tradition has had very patriarchal aspects to it and they read that very critically and suspiciously. But simultaneously, Islamic feminists make the claim that within Islam there are deeply egalitarian resources as well. And the tradition, therefore, is not monolithically this or that. The, the tradition, like every religious tradition, has the whole spectrum of interpretation that's open. And Islamic feminists would argue that the core teachings in Islam are premised on the dignity of every human life, on the absolute moral agency that every human life has, and all of these narratives are drawn from the scripture and from the original sources, and they would make the argument that, in fact, patriarchy, misogyny, and these kinds of developments have been a deviation, an interpretation, a way in which male elites have taken the tradition or the spiritual, uh, you know, uh, the, the spiritual core of the tradition and have, in fact, distorted it. So they would argue that it is something that's always been inherent but has been rendered invisible by patriarchal interpretation, by patriarchal power, uh, and in fact, their argument for many Islamic feminists, and of course, Islamic feminists are not just one thing. There's a range of different positions that Islamic feminists have, uh, and many of them do different kinds of work. They have different approaches to the sacred text. But by and large, the term Islamic feminism can be seen as a methodology and a movement, and it's one that is a commitment to the dignity, the equality, and the full humanity of men and women alike. And they would see this as being deeply embedded in the spiritual heart of Islam and in this very first revelatory message that was brought. 
Why, um, why call it Islam then, uh, Professor Sheikh? Why call it Islamic feminism if there's, it is not about Islam, but about the way people have uh, misogynistically interpreted the text? Why would you not use your agency and direct it towards the actual problem? If the problem is interpretation, why call it Islamic feminism? Why don't you call it um, anything else but Islam? Why do you direct the agency at the faith of Islam and not the interpret the hermeneutic. In fact, it's because religion has been utilized. I mean, we must at the outset, of course, recognize that religion is a contested territory, that religions have been interpreted in a variety of ways, that within any religious tradition, you have a range of perspectives from very conservative patriarchal approaches and readings and interpretations of the tradition to ones that are believe in gender complementarity to those who believe in radical equality and feminism. I understand, so Professor Sheikh. I understand. No, no, my, my, just, my, my question, yes. Professor Sheikh, um, I need you to give me a very pointed response here is I, I totally understand the, the definition you gave and I'm a pro- openly welcome it. What I'm prob- I have a problem with is then calling the agency of the activists Islamic feminism. It, it, it directs the attention to Islam. When you're going to call it the road to Islam and not the road to Pretoria, because the focus now becomes Islam. It's no longer the interpretation, the, 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 the unnuanced interpretation that you're, you're advocating for. My question is, why do you call it Islamic feminism? Because, in effect, women within religious communities, like the Muslim community, come hither with a lot of patriarchy within their community that's justified through Islam and in Muslim, you know, in, in the language of Islam. Justified by so, whom? By religious authorities, by the community, by aspects. By some religious yeah. authorities, of course, even that is not monolithic, by some parts of the community. So that in reality, when one is exposed to and one is facing injustice in the community, there are ways in which within that community, Muslim women face a legitimation of patriarchy by people appealing to androcentric or patriarchal or sexist readings of the tradition. Would there be a difference, a distinction between the problems that Muslim women face that would cause them to be agents of change and begin or participate in this movement as you guys have just um, uh, 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 defined it? That is different to any other feminist because feminists generally would identify themselves as feminists. But there is a need now, interesting enough, to identify this one distinctly as Islamic feminism, as though there is something different. If you're going to say the problem is from society, then why don't you just call it feminism and not add Islam? As, as I've just mentioned, Maya, I think the reality is that religions frame a lot of people's reality. And so religion is not just uh, you know, a set of things that you do on the side. Religion informs very much people's subjectivity, what they think of as authoritative, what is meaningful, where they position themselves in the world. So when you say Islam, you're not just speaking about some faith that you do in secular terms on the side. You're thinking about an entire worldview that frames who you are in the world, what your meaning and relationship to, to, to the world is, uh, what is virtue, what is vice, how you engage okay. with evil, those questions. Doctor, and doctors, so if you think religion is not something incidental, it's fundamental to people's sense of who they are and how they act in the world. All right. Dr. Sadat, help me understand. If you were to define Islamic feminism, would you say the definition of Islamic feminism is distinct and separate from feminism in general? 
Dr. Sadat? So I think as Professor Sheikh is, is explaining, the the significance or the specificity of what makes this form of feminism and Islamic feminism is that it comes from the experiences of what it is to be Muslim. It comes from within communities uh, of uh, within Muslim communities, communities of uh, people who are experiencing or having experiences where the where they're looking for or encountering, sorry, where they're encountering patriarchal and misogynistic interpretations and understandings of Islam and responding with interpretations, etc., that are different, that are, that are egalitarian, and that those responses themselves don't come from some other random place, but they come from an individual's own understanding of Islam and their own conviction of being Muslim. And that's a very important aspect um, of understanding how or why people would identify themselves as Muslim feminists. It's primarily because they see that their, their approach to equality, their approach to the questioning of, of gendered forms of power that they see that coming from their commitment to being Muslim, their commitment to ideas of Islam, whether it is the, you know, the unity of God or the, the messengerhood of, of, of the Prophet, peace be upon him. But these are the places from which the inspiration for an Islamic, com- uh, Islamic feminism comes from, not from other spaces. And that's why it becomes an Islamic feminism. All right. Um, let me let me let me change perhaps my, my 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 line of questioning. Let me give you first background. I would identify myself as as a first wave and second wave feminist as a as nai. I identify myself as as a first and second wave feminist, and that's general definitions of feminism. But now I'm struggling to identify Islamic feminism because generally feminism would include each and every woman regardless of where they are it simply says women should be entitled to be respected as human beings so i need you to educate me now and bring me to that understanding perhaps you can give us a mental table there dr sadat that distinguishes and say general feminism is this but islamic feminism is that which would draw distinctions that would distinguish general feminism from islamic feminism now, I need you to school me there, Dr. Sadat. Just give us that perhaps three or four examples and say, um, general feminism, this, and this is how it differs to Islamic feminism. General feminism, this, give us four examples there. Go ahead, Dr. Sadat. Okay, so you spoke about the multiple waves. You identified yourself, I think, in the second and the third wave. Am I correct? First and, first and second wave. First and first second. And se- yeah. First and second wave. That's okay. correct. So, following um, the first and the second wave, we have a third wave. And Correct. the crucial aspect of the third wave is that in the third wave, we're interested not only in the idea of being women, but we're also questioning which women the first two waves have been attentive to. And the first two waves, we come to know, have been attentive primarily to the experiences of northern white liberal women. And so... Those are the interests that have been prioritized. Uh, the interests of women who were not uh, 
elite women, women who are not white women, women who are not from the north, those were not the interests of the first two waves. And then the third wave is when we begin to look at a more sort of intersectional kind of approach. We're looking at people who are not, you know, white liberal women. We're looking at people who come from different identities. And so the third wave is about difference. And the reason for this is because we realize in the first two waves, the interests of the people that have been spoken about are not the interests of all women, right? So if you take in South Africa, for example, women did get the vote in South Africa before any black people got the vote, right? So whereas you might have, as a, a white woman, have argued for the vote for, white, for women uh, prior to 1994, you were not interested in all women. You were just interested in a particular kind of woman, right? So, so there you have a first wave, a second wave, a third wave, which incorporates a lot more interest around women. You have other waves as well. When we look at Islamic feminism, what makes it particularly different is that we're looking at the interests of Muslim women, of women who identify with a religion, because a large part of feminism as well has been to exclude women who identify with a religion, women who choose a pietistic way of life, so an Islamic feminism is very specifically speaking to the interests, needs, and concerns of women who are also identified or identify themselves with Islam. I don't know if that gives you the kind of uh, I don't know if that gives you the kind of um, specific examples you want. Yeah, to an extent, I want to bring in also um, uh, uh, Professor Sheikh there to uh, to add to that. Uh, I, it's helping. It's helping to to. To, to put it in that context of third wave-ism, it, 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 gives, it gives some perspective there. Thank you very much, Dr. Sadat. Professor Sheikh, would you like to add to those clarity points? Yes, just very briefly, I think Fatima's done an excellent uh, job of actually rendering visible, I think, something central in your question. Um, and that is that there is not a universal experience of oppression, yeah. that people are situated at the intersection of a very many different life worlds, very different intersections of power, and very different sets of meaning systems. And for people for whom religion is meaningful, to render it secondary or peripheral to be thinking about equality is not to take their reality seriously. And in fact, there's a history of earlier secular Western feminists that have decidedly and universally had the view that all religion is oppressive to women. Not just Islam, but all, all religions are oppressive. And in that very move for the, the kind of position by secular feminists or, or, or avowedly secular feminists that were hostile to religion was the view that religion could never be emancipatory. And so any woman that was religious was suffering false consciousness. Now, that is an incredibly imperial move. It's as condescending as patriarchally problematic by assuming that you know the realities of others, that a religion can only be X, Y, and Z. Uh, so the idea of the third wave and intersectionality takes seriously the way people, the ways in which women and different groups of women name their realities, uh, articulate what is meaningful to them, where they where they discern, uh, they and where they elicit their forms of empowerment from, where their meaning making comes from, and and the other point I think is important to make is not to say that religion or Islam, for that matter, is monolithically one experience. I think the other thing that we have to cons- have to really take on board sensitively is that religion can be numerous things for the same person as well. So people can be ambivalent. They are parts of their religious tradition that is deeply empowering, and then in other spaces they encounter things that's diminishing. And people shy and work through these tensions, and Islamic feminism is one way to say, well, 
here's a way to work through this tension and let's prevent empowering ways of being Muslim. Uh, so, so simply to add that. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, now there there, there arises a, a, a pertinent question that perhaps you could, you could could answer for me now to help me understand if we're talking about the idea of agency from Islamic people, because I don't want it to be an exclusively women's thing. I I do believe that you can be a, a feminist and not necessarily be a woman. Now, my curiosity is, what will be the end result? One of the many results of secular and general feminism is gender equality. Again, that's one of them. Now, it, would it be correct to say that is too? Also, from Islamic feminism, one of the end results to have or to create gender equality. Go ahead, yes. uh, uh, Professor, Professor uh, Sheikh. No, absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, the idea of gender justice is a central kind of outcome and a desire and a no, goal. No, 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 family. Professor. No, no, not gender justice. I, I, I specifically said equality because justice can, can morph into any other thing. I was curious in the well, famous term of gender equality because my follow-up question is based on just that, the equality part. So my question is, does Islamic feminism envisage gender equality? In my, in my reading, absolutely. Okay. Okay, and and what 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 would what would that look like that that equality? Because as as we've been taught by Islamic theologians, there is no such thing as equality. Um, there are different roles and different expectations uh, by Allah for the various genders. The, men are not expected to carry children for nine months. Allah did not create men for that, and therefore there can never be equality of that kind. So again. How would that equality look like if we know for a fact that biologically and as, as far as any other thing that is physical and tangible and quantifiable, it is not possible to have equality? What would that equality mean or look like? So in my view and in my reading uh, and from the works of Islamic feminism, firstly, I think you, you can just go back one point to, to the, the point that you alluded to. I don't think Islamic feminism or any feminism for that matter is purely for women. I think feminism is about the transformation of a society so that you can move from a you know, from structures of domination and Correct. from a logic of domination into one of reciprocity. Correct. Here, and so here. you're thinking about equality and egalitarian forms of relationships. So I think, we, you know, that's certainly the way in which I see feminism and many Islamic feminists okay. do their work in terms of transforming those kinds of relationships. Now, I think the other point, of course, is that equality does not mean that people have sameness. So the idea that's of... Right. You know, that's I right. Mean, it's, 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 a, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit in my view of a simplistic way in which, you know, you often have patriarchs that say, well, oh no, only women can do it. So, yes, absolutely, only women can bear children. You know, some women, not all women, can bear children. Uh, but that is not necessarily the way in which to argue for a complementarity mode, which many yeah. conservative religious people do. Okay. So the idea of equality, we don't have a single model of equality, quite honestly. And so in a variety of different contexts, equality might take different faces. So, for example, the idea, you know, in traditional, for example, in traditional Islamic law, in traditional men, you know, there's an entire history of male elites interpreting the law, there would be a certain view that women get a lower inheritance right because actually their brothers and their fathers are, you know, supposed, and their husbands are supposed to be taking care of them financially. We live in South Africa in context, Muslim communities and other communities where women are working, earning, they're not being taken care of. In inverted commas, they're not being provided for financially. What does that mean for women for whom the kind of social structures that different 
historical legal frameworks that created no longer resonate. So yeah, equality yeah. would look very different. And equality would mean a more egalitarian, equal inheritance law, for example, which is what Islamic feminists and legal scholars have argued for. Okay. It's saying that we need equality because we need an equality in different social moments and in different historical contexts can look very different. I think we, we, we need to also be quite sensitive and cognizant of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want, I, want to, I, want to, I want to bring in, again, the, the callers are most welcome. Please feel free to join the conversation. It's going to end in about 23 minutes' time. Um, 011 Send us a WhatsApp voice note or a WhatsApp text to 0614-104-107. Dr. Sadat, there, there's a, a very interesting conversation that South Africa has been having ever since the introduction of the Green Paper on polyandry. And the suggestion was, well, if, if men are entitled and have the right in terms of South African law and customary law to amass wives unto themselves, that liberty should be opened up to any and every other human being after all. They are all human rights, and the Bill of Rights says you must not discriminate in terms of sexuality and gender. So if I were to import that conversation into this one, would Islamic feminism also include the women having the right to amass husbands as well? Since, after all, women's rights are human's rights, and if a man is entitled to do that, a woman should be. Would that also be part of your agency, Dr. Sidat? I haven't heard any uh, Muslim feminists speaking in any significantly loud ways about polyandry. So we don't have a situation where we've seen these sorts of arguments. And I think it's important to be clear and to say that that is just where it's at, because it's really, really easy for people to pose these sorts of questions as a way of delegitimizing something like Islamic feminism, you know, uh, to say, oh, look, uh, you want this and so you want everything and so you want to turn our entire society upside down. And that is a very good way of delegitimizing and taking away the really valuable and important work that people do to actually think through these ideas very carefully, right? It's called baiting. Uh, this is how we bait uh, people when we talk about ideas which are not yet even part of the discussions within these communities. And we try to say, oh, but of course, the next thing you're going to be doing is, and we create some sort of, you know, um, scenario which people would be offended by. Uh, And we use that to uh, take away from the serious work that's happening. Uh, And and, uh, the work that's happening, which is informed by very, very serious concerns that people have and experiences that people have of violence, of violation, of inequality and deprivation, of impoverishment, all because of gender inequality. So I think it's very important to think about the kinds of questions we ask and what the intention is in posing questions which um, you know, are not yet even part of the discussion that people are having. Then what would be the, 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 the Islamic feminist position on, the, on that debate? Was it to say it's irrelevant to us, therefore we, we're not even going to comment on it? We'll know that position when that debate starts to happen. Okay, all right. And then we, we, we are talking about now a, a, a faith that is very much 
as 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 much as it is based on the the traditions of the Prophet Muhammad, they're also and mainly based on the text which was birthed out of the prophecy of, of, of the Prophet Muhammad. My curiosity is, does your text give any any suggestion or perhaps can we look at the text and glean anything that would give rise to Islamic feminism? Go ahead, Dr. Sadat. Well, Islamic feminist scholars and activists take the impetus directly from ideas and ethics that uh, are in the Quran and the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So, you know, there are a number of verses which people argue support the equality of Muslim men and women. Okay. Uh, there are this Surah 4, uh, verse 1. I don't have it in front of me and I don't want to misquote it. Um, there are various verses that speak about the equality in terms of the origin of humanity, in terms of the equal um, reward that souls get for the work that we do in this world. And the equality begins from the level of the soul, in that individuals, and I mean, I don't know anybody that would ever argue for an inequality at the level of the soul. Um, and so, yes. You know, if, if we see ourselves located primarily in that identity, in the identity of the soul, then there isn't any room for inequality. Um, so, yeah, does that answer your question? Or do you want me to continue? Yeah. I, I was hoping that we would read the texts. Now, this this part of our conversation was to just bring us back to the text because what we're trying to do with our programming is to encourage people to read the texts of the various faiths for themselves and then draw their own conclusions. But I want to bring in the callers as well. 0891 Send your voice notes and text to 0614-104-107-0614-104-107. Let's go to Johannesburg first. We do have Hassan Logart. Good evening to you, Mr. Logart. Go ahead. What's on your mind? Good evening. Mm. Uh, yeah, my question is uh, firstly to say thank you to you for an inspiring and long overdue discussion. My, my question is more, uh, as you would know, as from an organizer's perspective, I wanted to know what does it look like for those working within an Islamic feminist perspective to organize uh, around, for example, consciousness raising, which has been a tradition among feminists you know, worldwide, uh, the lived experience of, ma- of male power. So doesn't that provide a space for Muslim feminists to organize which will find them in many ways alongside other sisters who are doing the same. But there was a point also where, where I think, I don't know if Dr. Sirat or who raised the issue about that the other women before didn't fight uh, for a universalistic kind of uh, women's inclusion kind of thing, white women. Well, I think the black sesh in the 50s actually did fight when, when colored voters were taken off the voters' role, and that's how they emerged as a movement. But be that as it may, uh, I wanted to raise a bigger issue about how you organize, because there's the one part where you may get theological or, or textual inspiration, but the lived reality, which is also part of the tradition that one gets from, from many of the good books, is that we'll give up new things, that how you organize, how do you organize around the impacts of Muslim marriage act, or how you organize around these. There may be something there where you find male power is quite dominant. I don't know. All right, we'll, we'll have Dr. Sadat respond to that. But a question to you. Do you imagine that the black sash wears was advocating for the rights of women, Muslim women? All women. 
particularly the experiences, the lived experiences of Muslim women, which all women don't have the same experiences of Muslim women. Do you imagine that the black sash, I understand it was very advanced at their time, but my curiosity is, did they have anything that would have benefited Muslim women's issues? That's, that's a question to you, Mr. Logart. Well, no, no. Uh, my, my issue is that if they were fighting for the removal of the colored voters' role uh, in the 50s, right, clearly, uh, if you like, Malay women and others were included in that. And I think in terms of them having the right to vote, okay, it wasn't as much as... I mean, these, the people thought they struggled with the way they saw them. Gandhi and others were criticized for defending the rights of Indians not to be worse off. So I guess in a way it was limited, but I guess in some way quite progressive it's fine as well. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Dr. Sadat, I'm going to ask you to respond to that. But first, I want to take a few more calls uh, for you. Uh, let's go to Jack Governor in Durban. Good evening, Jack Governor. Go ahead. What's up? Hi. Good evening, Naya. Hi. Hi. Good program. Good Thank program. Thank you, sir. Yeah, I'd like to know something. Uh, I'm 68 years old. I grew up with Muslims. I would like to know one thing. Why, as you asked the professor and the doctor there, why Muslim women don't go to mosque on a Friday with men. This is very important. I'd like to know the answer on the radio. All right. I'll listen on the radio. Thank All right. you again. All right. We have Bye. One... Bye. Thank you very much, uh, Jack. Uh, Bye. We Bye. have one question for Professor Sidat. I'm going to ask you, uh, um, uh, um, Dr. Sidat and Professor uh, uh, Sheikh, I'm going to ask you to take the second question, please. Let's go to Mohammed in the Eastern Cape. Mohammed, good evening. Uh, good evening. Yes, go ahead. I want to ask the Sheikh. Which equality is he talking? Are they going to change the verse of the Quran that say a man, man and woman should have different inheritance? Or which equality are they talking of? Because you can't change the word of Allah. If they can change it, then they should change it unless he said that we all have equality in Islam. Okay. Who would you like to respond to that? Dr. Sidat or Professor Sheikh? It doesn't matter. Okay, um, he, he's not, not going to choose there. All right, no problem. Um, thank you very much, Mohammed. I'm going to begin with you, Dr. Sidat. Would you like to respond to the first question? Yeah, so the question, which uh, was the way I understand it, was, you know, would we say that people, that organizations like the Black Sash would have worked in the interests of Muslim women? Um Absolutely. I no, mean, no, 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 no. That was my question to him, um, uh, uh, Doctor Sadat. For, forgive me for, for for interrupting you there. His question was: How would your organization, your agency, be uh, well applied not only to women here but all over? When you organize women, what what does it look like, and how do you make uh, that be uh, something that is going to be relevant to all Muslims all around, not just Muslims in in, in a particular locale? I, I think that's what he said. Okay. Um, I got another dimension to the question too, but I'll go with this. Okay. So, uh, yes, I mean, there's all sorts of organizing that does happen. It happens like other advocacy work. It's online. It's, you know, in person. Um, and we find that we share a lot of concerns um, internationally as well. We share concerns uh, locally across uh, provincial boundaries. Um, some concerns are shared across class boundaries, not all. Uh, some concerns are shared across, you know, various other differences. But the way the organizing happens is it happens as in any other sort of uh, feminist advocacy with lots of 
struggle uh, because there's lots of resistance to some of the uh, to the ideas of equality that we propose. It happens with lots of um, um, a lot of it happens very voluntarily. Very little of this is ever funded, uh, primarily because a lot of human rights funding doesn't go into religion uh, into funding any kind of religious communities. So lots of organizations will fund human rights work. But if you talk about funding, uh, about a project that's about human rights within a Muslim community, for example, it's not going to be funded. So a lot of this work happens voluntarily. A lot of it happens on people's you know, own, own time. So it also happens a bit slowly. It's mostly unpaid from what I've seen. I see very Islam- little Islamic feminist work that gets paid. There's some really interesting organizations that have developed on national and international level, for example. On the international level, there's been groups like Women Living Under Muslim Laws. Uh, they've been Sisters in Islam, which is in Malaysia. Most recently, uh, a group that's come up about 10 years ago is Musawa, which now has status at the UN. And their work is specifically about advocating for equality in the Muslim family. So that's some of the ways in which it happens locally in South Africa. We, uh, I'm part of a group called the Muslim Personal Law Network, which is a very informal group also of uh, Muslim women advocating for equality in, Islam, in Muslim marriages. Um, there are many other groups in, in South Africa. Uh, there's a woman of Waqf who recently launched their organization as well. So there are a number of other groups that are working on Muslim women's rights locally, nationally, and internationally. Okay. And, and you said you had another understanding of the question. I don't want to shut that one out. Would you like to give that also? So, so what I think you, I thought your caller might also have been asking okay. was how does the relevant, what relevance is there of the, of the advocacy that Muslim feminists do in terms of women generally? I thought that was, might have been the question. Okay. Uh, and, you know, if I was to speak to that, then there certainly is relevance because the people who are affected by Islamic laws of marriage, for example, are not only Muslim women. They are all women who might be in a Muslim marriage and some of them might not even be Muslim. Uh, the issues around uh, equality per se, equality in religion would apply to anybody who is any, in any sort of Muslim community. If we're asking, for example, uh, for women in Muslim marriages to have equal access to property, uh, that's a, a universal sort of demand that we make within marriage. Uh, so there's lots of ways in which the advocacy we do around equality uh, for Muslim women is about a much broader conversation about equality for women generally. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Professor Sheikh, um, your question, uh, do you remember it? Yes, I do. All right, um, go and, ahead. and actually, it's, it's a great question because in some sense it also links to the previous question that was asked. Okay. And it's about Muslim women going to the mosque on a Friday. On Friday, that's right. Uh, and actually, Fatima Sidat and myself have just... Um, finished and completed a book on contemporary Muslim women's sermons, and we do a, a chapter there that traces the history of Muslim women's presence in mosques from the earliest period to the contemporary period. Okay. Um, and so in the very early Muslim community, the community of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Muslim women were part of, the, part of the congregants. They were part of the mosque, they were active, they were engaged in every kind of way. And then there's a whole set of histories that unfold. There are women in a variety of spaces, and there are different histories of women's presence in the mosque, depending where we are talking historically and geographically. Uh, but more and more, as we come now to contemporary South Africa, 
they are, if you're looking across South Africa, there are different mosques in the Cape. There's a lot of spaces that have, there's a lot of mosques that have spaces for women, less so in the north. Um, and then, of course, it's the kind of spaces. So there are certain mosques that will have balconies and basements and, unsa- you know, not, not, the, not the nicest aesthetics for women. And there are others that have more inclusive, more beautiful spaces. And then you have mosques few and far between that actually have a single space that men and women occupy, sometimes with a, bad, with a kind of rope in between, but nothing beyond that. So the idea of how spaces and Friday, you know, so at the moment, for example, Fatima and I are both congregants that go to uh, their online communities. In fact, one of the interesting things that developed uh, from COVID, from the COVID period, is that there's a number of online women's congregations that happen, which has been quite a bountiful um, experience for many women. Uh, but mosques across the board, there's not a there's not a singular a singular way. Patriarchal spaces keep women away from mosques. This is the intervention of patriarchy into a communal space. It is precisely what Islamic feminists are resisting, fighting, and retrieving the earlier histories of women's presence in the mosque and activity in the mosque. And there's a growing movement in different spaces in the world for women to take on not just presence in the mosque, but also to be presenting the sermons and to become imams. So in our book, the book that Fatima and I have with Yale University will be coming out in the first half of 2022, uh, is a book of sermons from women from all around the world, ranging from Senegal to Egypt to Indonesia to Europe, to uh, Denmark um, and uh, uh, to Pakistan. Uh, so these are women from a variety of places that actually have contributed sermons. So they're not only are present in the mosque, but well, not all of them have presented sermons in mosques. Some of them have written the sermon and don't have a mosque to present it to. And so in some sense, this book itself is a space uh, for women to establish some kind of authority. Other women have presented talks, uh, sermons at mosques, both Fatima and I have done so. Uh, so it really depends on which community you're going and where you're going. And it's just to flag that particular question as something that's become very salient for contemporary Islamic feminists, the, the, the reclaiming of sacred space uh, in the mosque. And I'd, if, I, if you would like, I can respond very quickly to the last question as well, Naya. Okay, like all right, speak? that's all right, that's all right, go ahead. So there's, there's numerous verses in the Quran that speak to women and men's equality. I mean, there's one story that is rather that, that, I, that I'm particularly fond of, and this is the wife of the Prophet on Salma was listening. So the story is in the Muslim tradition that the wife of the Prophet was listening to Revelation, and Arabic is a gendered language. So when you speak in the plural, it doesn't matter if there's only one man in this plural group, the address is a masculine address. It can have a hundred women and one man, but the language is gendered so that you would address it as a masculine plural. So she listened to this, and then she turned to the Prophet, and she asked what we might call in today's language a very feminist question. She said to her husband, does God only speak to men? And the Prophet, peace be upon him, did not answer. He didn't quickly reassure and say, no, 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 of course God speaks to women. He simply was quiet. And then a revelation came down in response to the question of this very thoughtful woman. And the revelation was, and in this particular revelation, I could read the surah to you. Uh, it's in chapter 33, verse 35, and it reads, for Muslim men and Muslim women, for believing men and believing women, for devout men, devout women, true men, true women, men and women who are patient, who are constant, who humble themselves, who give charity, who fast, who guard their chastity, who engage in God's praise. For them, God has prepared 
forgiveness and a great reward. What's very interesting about this verse is there's a question of the equality of women in the eyes of God and the eyes of the community and in their agency in the world. And the response that comes not simply from the prophet but from God is that indeed for every way in which human agency is valued and moral agency is valued, it is completely equal. And so this, this particular, you know, this verse of the Quran, Islamic feminists have actually really done a lot of really good work. And one of the kinds of things that come through is that not only is this verse a very clear and strong articulation of the equality of men and women, but moral agency of men and women as being absolutely equal, but it also is encouraging a critical feminist response to anything that excludes women or any human being from being the center the any human being from being the central addressee or the central moral agent of the Quran. There are lots of other verses. Of course, you know? of course. They're All right. Written. All right, I want to, want to play some voice notes before we conclude our conversation, then we'll conclude after the voice notes. Let's go to the first one, Sylvester. Hi, Naya. This is Jack from Durban. I'd like to know why Muslim women don't go to mosque with men on a holy day. Please try to explain this to me. Thank you. All right, let's get to the second one. Good evening, Naya. I just wanted to find out what your guests and you think about regarding, uh, you know, regarding everybody being treated fairly and quality and things like that. What is your take on what happened the other day when a Muslim woman called another Muslim woman a ninja for wearing the hijab, I think it was? All right. I'm going to ask both of my guests to respond and then give their concluding remarks. 30 seconds each. Let's begin with you, uh, Dr. Sadat. Dr. Sadat? Sure. So I'll start with, I think we've answered the first one already. Correct. So we'll just go through the second one. Yeah. And essentially, uh, you know, on that issue, I think it's, it's very clear that what happened there was highly problematic. It was a terribly, um, you know, there's an awful thing that was said. Uh, and essentially what happened was that you had one person delegitimizing another person using their dress and making, you know, a very sort of uh, disparaging remark to say that this person, Advocate Bauer, because of the way in which she is dressed and the fact that she is arguing for equality, she herself could not possibly be genuinely representing Islam and Muslims. And this is a highly problematic statement. But it was made nonetheless, and um, we, you know, we're, the Muslim Person Law Network, which is the group that I said I worked with, we put out a statement to say that this is actually a very, what uh, Yasmin Omar has done is used actually a very Islamophobic trope. And the trope that she's used is the, is the idea that a woman who wears her hijab in a particular way. Dr. Sidal, please forgive me. Our time is up. I was hoping to give okay. Professor Sheikh an opportunity to conclude. Please, Professor Sheikh, forgive me for not giving the time. Our time is already up. If you permit me, I'm going to conclude on that very note to both of my guests. Thank you. Associate Professor Saadia Sheikh and Dr. Fatima Sidat, both of our guests educating us tonight on Islamic feminism. Well, we'll continue this conversation and we do appreciate the education from me, Naya Lupondwana, and the team. Have a wonderful evening and Godspeed.